Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, and we are profiling the prince of Egypt. We will profile Aaron, the first high priest of Israel. We will profile Miriam, the sister of Moses. And if you don't know this, I'll tell you something very quickly that the Bible is about families. David was a family man. David would serve with his brothers and also his sons. New Testament, Jesus would choose himself men to be his apostles. And there are at least two groups of brothers concerning the master's men. But last week we were able to finish the first two chapters from the book of Exodus. And I showed you that Moses, the prince of Egypt, and according to the book of uh, Acts and also Hebrews, decided to turn his back on a very comfortable lifestyle and suffer the reproach with the children of Israel, who, up until this uh, time in history, had been in bondage, literal bondage, for many, many years. And chapter 3 is about the coming of age, Israel's deliverer. And we'll discuss that further during the next little while. Exodus chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3, look at verse 1 please. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert, and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. So Moses is a shepherd, Jesus Christ is called the good shepherd, and here Moses is keeping the flock of Jethro his father-in-law, which if you will, is a type of God the father, Jethro is a type of God the father, Moses is a type of God the Son, and the flock, if you will, is a type of the church. Many, many types and shadows in the Old Testament. Moses kept the flock of Jethro, also referred to as Ruel, from uh, chapter 2, verse 18. His father-in-law, the priest of Midian. So, like I said last Sunday, we will profile a Jethro in a few weeks' time. It could be that uh, Jethro was a polytheist. It could be that he worshipped many gods. It could be that up until this point in time, one of the gods that he worshipped was the one true God. But we'll discuss that down the line. And it speaks about leading uh, his flock, being Jethro's flock, to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. Or Horeb, many mountains in scripture, like Mount Sinai, like the Mount of Olives. And if you think of the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament on a regular basis... You read about the children of Israel going up to the high points, the high spots, and worshipping the Lord, but also worshipping Baal. And you've even got old Samuel going up to the high places to worship. Now, high places, just for the record, aren't always necessarily a bad thing. The Lord Jesus Christ would preach from the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount. He would uh, give his uh, famous message from the Mount of Olives. The Olivet Discourse, as it is referred to, as he ascended up to heaven, he did so via a mountain. Every week or two, I'm able to go to my open-air pulpit, which is one of the highest points in my town. It's not the highest point, but it's one of the highest points, and I preach about the one true God. So high places, mountains, aren't always affiliated with wickedness. If you think about Isaiah chapter 14, it speaks about the devil wanting to ascend far north. I will ascend up on high, I think he says seven times, or five times, I think it may be. He wants to do this, I want to do that. And that's the devil's desire. He wants to be like the Almighty. Look at verse 2, please. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. 
angel of the Lord, verse 2. Now in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is nearly always in reference to Jesus Christ. And that is referred to as a Christophany. A Christophany or a Theophany, which means quite simply that uh, Jesus Christ is appearing in physical form pre his incarnation. But for the New Testament, a subtle switch takes place and the angel of the Lord for the New Testament is the Holy Ghost. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him, being Moses, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, in the middle of a bush like the tree of life. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. The word of God says, our God is a consuming fire. If you think about a picture of a man in hell, he goes into hell, and a million years later, he's still in hell. A trillion years later, he's still in hell. And that particular doctrine, referred to as everlasting hell, is very unpopular. Most preachers won't preach it. Most preachers say that hell is a state of mind. Most people say that hell is a concept. Most people say hell is being separated from God. And I'll tell you something very quickly, that before I was saved, if you had said to me that such a place or such a concept concerning hell was the case, I would have said, that's fine by me. It wouldn't bother me one bit. I would have said this to you, and I'm being as honest as I can, this Lord's Day morning that before I was saved, I was quite happy doing my own thing. I enjoyed sin because sin is like junk food. You like junk food? I'm sure you do. Well, sin is the same. You like sin? Of course you like sin. Even after you're saved, you like sin. But the more you practice sin, the more unhappy you become. It's like a paradox. But if you were to say to me before I was saved that when I died, I would be separated from God forever, I'd say that's fine by me. I didn't know the Lord until 16 years ago. And here you're reading about a bush which is burning, but not burning up. It's like burning, it's consuming. It's on fire, if you will, but it's not burning up. It's not consuming the bush. It's supernatural, of course. And it's one more time, a type of the tree of life. And Moses is very curious. People are very visual. Most men are very visual. And they say that uh, women fall in love by what they hear, whereas men fall in love by what they see. And here Moses, a murderer from chapter 2, an Egyptian, the prince of uh, Egypt, has murdered a man, one of his uh, colleagues. He's buried him in the sand and he's run for the hills. But by the, by the end of uh, Exodus chapter 2, he's found a woman. He's fallen in love with her, or so we are to assume. He's married her and they've got two sons. So Moses has been redeemed. Moses has been given a second chance. Look at verse 3, please. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. So he knows that what he is seeing is something supernatural. And if you didn't know, this chapter is going to be the start of signs and wonders. If you think of that verse from uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I think it is, it says that the Jews require a sign and they are entitled to it. Time after time, the Jews in the Gospels would say to Jesus, show us a sign. And he would show signs like they'd never seen ever before. And yet those signs weren't enough. And he would say over in, I think it's Matthew chapter 12, how an evil and adulterous generation seek after a sign. And there'll be no sign given to such a generation. Of course, the greatest sign would be the resurrection. But here Moses, Israel's first deliverer, a type of Jesus Christ, is number one, about to come of age. And number two, he'll have the sign gifts like Jesus Christ. I will now turn aside, verse 3, and see this great sight. Why the bush is not burnt. This bush is burning, but it's not burning up. It's like a picture of hell fire. 
if you go to Arlington Cemetery, and I was there some years ago, they had the uh, Eternal Flame. And back in 1963, when John F. Kennedy was first buried there, uh, the flame blew out. And there was a gasp, and somebody had to quickly relight it. And they realized that they'd have to make sure this never goes out again. And I think since 1963, it hasn't once gone out. And I was there maybe 20 years ago before I was saved, and I observed JFK's uh, graveside, the eternal flame, and not far from his burial uh, spot is Robert Kennedy's. Very bland, very basic. You could have easily missed it. But here you're reading about Moses seeing a bush on a mountain. It's burning up, but it's not being consumed. It's like if you think of a candle, a candle starts to flicker, and normally the candle flickers, and the wax starts to wax away, melt away, and then the candle goes out. Or if you think of a bulb, when they first invented the bulbs some years ago, the first batch of bulbs were made to last, light forever. And when people got wind that bulbs wouldn't uh, blow, they decided to uh, recreate them, redesign them, so that they would blow. So you'd have to go out and buy new ones. But the original idea had been that once a bulb had been sold, it didn't blow. It would burn forever, which is a picture of hell, of course. Many times people are creating uh, particular things and not aware that they are picturing everlasting hell. But Moses is intrigued. He sees this bush on a mountain, on a mount, and like I say, it's on fire, but it's not burning up. And he wants to know what it is all about. Look at verse 4, please. And when the Lord saw that, he turned aside to see. God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. Now, verse 2, you read about the angel of the Lord, Old Testament for Jesus Christ. Verse 4, you read about Lord, uppercase, being God the Father, may I suggest, and also God, picturing God the Holy Ghost. I'm afraid to say that a good number of people today are turning from the doctrine, the correct doctrine of the Trinity, also referred to as the Godhead. A lot of people, especially on YouTube now, are falling into the oneness camp or modalism. And if you are a Trinitarian, it seems that you are now under great attack. A lot of people are apostatizing from once holding to the belief that God is three persons but one God. And here, the third chapter of the second book, you read about Jesus Christ, verse 2. You read about God the Father and God the Holy Ghost in verse 4. And I'll discuss that more in a few moments' time. Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. God is very personal. He will speak to people and he will address people uh, via their first name. Up until this part in the Bible, the Old Testament, Almighty God has spoken to men. When he came the first time, or when he came in the person of Jesus Christ at the first advent, he came speaking to men. Yes, there are accounts when he would speak to people like uh, Rebecca, and down the line he would speak to uh, the mother of Samson and Samuel. And yes, he would speak to Mary in the New Testament, but nine times out of ten he will speak to men. And such men, or a good number of those men, would go on to write the Bible. Not a very popular uh, thing to say for today's postmodern world, but that's how it is. Look at verse 5, please. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. So, number one, God is holy, 
obviously. Number two, the Bible is holy, obviously. And number three, the church is holy as well. Outside of the church, outside of the Bible, outside of God, nothing, no one, anywhere, at any time is holy. And the only reason why this place is holy is because God is there. Draw not nigh hither. Don't come here or don't come any nearer to me until you remove your shoes from off your feet. For the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. If you speak to a Catholic, they will say that for them, a holy place is St. Peter's Square. If you speak to a Muslim, they will say that a place for them that is holy is Mecca. If you speak to a Bible-believing Christian, they will say that the only place that is holy for them is New Jerusalem. Our eternal abode is far north, but for worldly, visual, carnal, religious people, such places are either going to be in Rome or Saudi Arabia. Look at verse 6, please. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. I am the Lord, I am the master of your father. Not Amram, not his physical, biological father, but his father being Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he would rescue the children of Israel. They'd been in bondage for 400 years. And he would wait, and he would wait, and he would wait. And eventually, when it pleased the Lord, he would speak to Moses. If you think about Matthew's gospel, you've got a 400-year period of silence from Malachi to Matthew. And you've got many Jews coming and going, and during that 400 years of absolute silence, the wicked Talmud was penned, and eventually the Lord said it's time to speak to the the people of Israel again. And he would do so, of course, via Jesus Christ. In fact, look at it this way. Matthew chapter 1 tells you about the birth or the soon arrival of the king of the Jews. Exodus chapter 1 tells you about the birth or the arrival of the prince of Egypt concerning Moses. Matthew chapter 2 tells you about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and how somebody wanted to kill him like Herod. Exodus chapter 2 tells you about the birth of Moses and how somebody like Pharaoh wanted to kill him. Matthew chapter 3 tells you about the uh, arrival of the Messiah and his ministry about to take place Exodus chapter 3 tells you the same about Moses. Moses is a type of Jesus. Joseph is a type of Jesus. And so far, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 are making it very clear that the Lord can be related to, that he has a love for his people, unlike Allah and Islam or Muslims in general. And here it says, I am the God, present tense, Of thy father, verse 6, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jewish God, interested in Jewish patriarchs. And it's like this. If it wasn't for those three people, Jehovah would have no interest whatsoever in the Jews. Paul picks us up in the book of Romans, and he says exactly the same thing. The fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are greatly beloved. And because they are greatly beloved, this covenant... The Old Testament covenant is an everlasting covenant concerning Jehovah's love for the patriarchs. Going back to his love for a group of Jewish men. Very exclusive. Look at verse uh, 7 please. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt. And have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. 
for I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out to the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land, unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. You've got at least six people here that Jehovah is going to just wipe off the face of the earth. As far as he is concerned, they are idolaters, they are pagans. Through foreknowledge, he knows they will never turn to him. And therefore, because he is the landowner of the earth, because he owns the title deeds to the earth, he can do whatever he wants to do. And this is very unpopular today. People like to say that God is love, and of course he is, but they don't qualify it. They don't explain it. His love is conditional. He's also God of holiness. But here, I like the latter part of verse 6. For he, Moses, was afraid to look upon God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But seven again, and the Lord said, uppercase, here probably in reference to the triune God, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, his omnipresence, which are in Egypt, type of the world, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Contrast that to Jesus Christ, going back into Israel, uh, Matthew 2, Matthew 3, coming up against Herod's son. And around that time, the Jews are in spiritual bondage. Here they are in physical bondage. And Pharaoh, Exodus 1, 2, and 3, type of the Antichrist, who will be ruling and reigning during the tribulation, is also pictured in the four Gospels. Herod the second, of course. I've heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. The, the, uh, the word of God says that Jesus Christ was a man acquainted with sorrows and grief. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. He would come down physically back in uh, Genesis 18 to see what was going on on the earth. And by Genesis chapter 19, he and he alone would wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. If you go back to Genesis 6, 7, 8, and also going into 9, uh, God and God alone would flood the earth and wipe out millions of people due to sin, like excessive sin. But here... He will do something slightly different. He will work through a man. The man Moses. Which if you speak to Muslims. They will say this. Well we. Referring to Muslims. They say. We are able to go straight to our God. We don't need to go through third parties. Well they are lying. You see a good Muslim has to go through Muhammad. A good Muslim has to read the Quran and the Hadith. And has to accept what Muhammad wrote. They believe that Muhammad is the greatest prophet. And yet. When they say that, it's very difficult to hold a straight face because uh, Muhammad was 56 years of age when he married young Aisha. She was six and he raped her, consummated the marriage, quote unquote, when she was nine. Is that a great man? You want to follow that kind of man, do you? I think I'd rather stick with Moses. Yes, he was a murderer, but as far as I know, didn't have any child brides. And like I said last Sunday and the Sunday before that, we don't follow Moses. Those of us which are born again. We don't follow Abraham. We don't follow Aaron. We don't follow Miriam. We don't follow any of the Old Testament kings or prophets. We follow the man, Christ Jesus, which if you profile him, you really struggle. You really struggle to find fault with him. And he goes and say in verse 8, And to bring them up out of that land, unto a good land and a large, because by the time they come out of Egypt, they are... Around one and a half million strong unto a land flowing with milk and honey. You can survive on milk and honey. A lot of good uh, 
calcium and vitamins and uh, substance, you could survive easily on that. But of course, this is also a metaphor for uh, a picture of the, uh, the new earth, a picture of never being in want. Milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Not Jesuits, as I've heard some people say, but Jebusites. You've got one, two, three, four, five, six groups of people, which up until this time were very powerful people. They had been on the earth for probably 2,000 years or thereabouts, were growing, were enjoying themselves. They were very wicked. And the Lord said, well, it's time to just remove them. You want to call it genocide? You call it genocide. This is God's world. He can do whatever he wants to do. And that doesn't go down very well with people. People don't like the idea that God could just wipe out five, six, seven, eight, nine million people going back to Sodom and Gomorrah and the same or similar figure going back to the Great Flood. But he can. When the tribulation has ended, around two billion people are just wiped off the face of the earth. The Word of God says that Almighty God wants sinners to be reconciled to him and he will do the ministry, the work of uh, redeeming people via deliverers. The entire Old Testament pictures God speaking to men. He would speak to Abraham. He would speak to Moses. And then Moses would speak to the people. Abraham would speak to the people. You won't find any verse in the Old Testament where God speaks to ordinary people. It's only when you get to the New Testament that such a thing takes place. Jesus Christ will speak to the people, the multitudes. It says how the common people heard him gladly. But the entire Old Testament, apart from those exceptions I just gave you, the Lord would speak to certain men. And those men would speak to the people. So when we say we have to go through Jesus Christ, that is completely in line with Scripture. If you didn't know Moses, or if you lived in the Old Testament, and you didn't recognize the ministry of Moses, you couldn't get near to the Lord. Look at Miriam. Numbers, I think it's 14, or Numbers 12. Look at Aaron. They are questioning the authority of Moses. They are questioning his wife, his second wife. And the Lord says, hang on, you people are out of line. That's my prophet. That's my messenger. I've chosen him for service, not salvation. You have no right to bypass him. And there are several mutinies back in the Old Testament. The same would be true from 1 Samuel chapter 8. And they would say to Samuel, we don't want to be ruled uh, by Jehovah. We want to have kings over us, leaders over us. And the Lord said to Samuel, that's okay. It's not you that they have rejected, it's me. And of course, they'd get Saul, their first king, and many problems would come. But here, the first eight verses from chapter three, and this, of course, is uh, week number five. This is broadcast number five, is all about the man Moses. The man Moses a murderer who was on uh, who was on the run, who was able to uh, find a wife, have children, has been given a second chance, if you will. And here, these first eight verses are the making of Moses. Look at verse 9, please. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me. And I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. So for 400 years or thereabouts, the Lord has sat back. The silence of the Lord. Malachi to Matthew, the Lord sits back and allows the children of Israel to do their own thing, to be a part of Babylonian practice, worship, so on and so forth. 
And many people would have died from the end of Genesis to Exodus chapter 3. And now it's time for the Lord to move. And again, you can't miss it, can you? How similar the ministry of Moses is to the ministry of Jesus. Look at verse 10, please. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Jesus Christ would go to Herod indirectly. But before he would go to Herod indirectly, the wise men went directly to Herod, Matthew chapter 2. And they would say to Herod, where is the king of the Jews? We followed his star. We've come from the east. And he would consult with the priests, the uh, holy fathers, the reverence of their day. And they would say to him in Bethlehem. They knew the scriptures. And of course, they all went down to worship the sun or the newborn baby. Herod went down. The priests went down. No, they didn't go down. Herod didn't go down. The priests didn't go down. Three wise men went down three gentiles went down and then of course before that would take place the shepherds got wind that the uh, prince of peace was born and they went down to pay homage to the newborn babe luke chapter one send thee unto pharaoh i'm going to send you unto herod that thou mayest bring forth my people the children of israel out of egypt i'm going to send jesus into israel to rescue my people out of spiritual Israel. Going back to spiritual bondage, physical bondage. Pharaoh at this time is the most powerful man in the world. Herod was the most powerful man in Israel. Although to be strictly accurate on this, I should probably say that Pilate was the most powerful man in Egypt, excuse me, in Israel. But Herod was working under the authority of uh, Pilate. But Pilate was never called the king of the Jews. Herod was. And Herod would uh, have John the Baptist uh, killed, whereas Pilate would be responsible for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what you are reading is two things. Number one, you're reading about a physical man being raised up to allow the children of Israel to escape physical captivity. The Lord has sat back for 400 years, and because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's time to send Moses in for a search and rescue mission. The same will be true of Jesus Christ. For the sake of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus Christ will be sent in to uh, a search, for, like a search and rescue mission because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Take those three patriarchs out of the picture, out of the equation. There'd be no hope for anyone. Now, for today, we know that if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, we'd all be sunk. There'd be no hope for any of us, but because of him, we are saved, we have peace, and whatever we experience... Uh, we experience because of him. Look at verse 11, please. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? I'm no one special. I'm nothing special. And here Moses, on the one hand, is quite humble, quite meek. And on the other hand, he is needing reassurance. It's a bit like when Mary had a visit from Gabriel and she would say, But who am I? I'm just a young girl, around 14, 15 years of age. I've never known a man. And you're telling me that the Messiah is going to come from me? Who am I that I should go on to Pharaoh? A man that he knew very well. A man who was his uh, spiritual father, if you will. In fact, Pharaoh's daughter was the surrogate mother of Moses. Moses was around 40 when he comes of age. 
he knows Pharaoh very well, and Pharaoh knows him very well, this is going to be somewhat difficult for him. Moses is now a Hebrew. He always was a Hebrew, of course, but he would turn his back on the Egyptian society, and the Lord wants him to go back into his land and preach to Pharaoh. Now, could you do that? Could you go back to your town that you were born in, that you were raised in? Could you go back and find your former headmaster, for example, or somebody who you once worked for, maybe a previous boss? Could you go knocking on people's doors and witnessing to them? And not, not only that, potentially be arrested, because this man, Moses, was a murderer. And Pharaoh could have said, put the cuffs on him, blood for blood, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. He's murdered a man, and he had done. I've got the right to arrest him, detain him, execute him. And the Lord said, never mind that, Pharaoh. Never mind that, Moses. I've got a much bigger project for you. Go, do this, do that. Who am I, Lord, that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? It's a fair question to ask. And this book is loaded with miracles. Almighty God could have done this himself. He would wipe the world out, like I say, concerning the flood. He would burn Sodom and Gomorrah. He wouldn't need, any, he wouldn't need uh, anybody's help on both occasions. But now he wants to work through people. He wants to work through men. But more specifically, he wants to work through Moses. He wants to work through Jesus. From John chapter 3, when Nicodemus went to Jesus, he said, we know that you are a teacher come from God. We know who you are. We know that what you are doing, you couldn't do off your own back. But we have our own preconceived ideas. We know that if we were to receive you, we would lose our kingdom, our privileges, uh, John chapter 11. And we don't want to lose that. We've got a good thing going. Like churches today, they get uh, charitable status. And they know that if they rock the boat, they could lose their charitable status and really have to uh, struggle for a period of time. And it's not just churches that get a charitable status. Uh, mosques get it. And so do synagogues. 12. And he said, Certainly I'll be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee, that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. Go to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. This came to me this morning. Uh, John chapter 4, very interesting passage. Uh, John chapter 4, look at verse 21 please. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, ye you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is. When the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Go back to Exodus. So two dispensations. And people say, well, I'm not a dispensationist. Well, you better be. Because Jesus has told you that, number one, you won't be worshipping him on this mountain. Which from Matthew, excuse me, from John 4 would be Ephraim. Uh, Samaria, going back to uh, Ahab, Jezebel, going back to the times of Elijah and Elisha, also in reference to Jerusalem. Going back to what I said a few minutes ago, that Catholics have St. Peter's Square, 
Their headquarters is St. Peter's. Muslims have Mecca. The Jews, yes, they have their wailing wall today. And it's always somewhat bizarre when you see non-Jews going to Jerusalem wearing their skull caps at the wailing wall, most of which don't believe a word of it. But they do it because it's a good photo opportunity. Uh, but for those of us which are saved, we have no headquarters. We know that our ultimate uh, place of residence is New Jerusalem. But here you've got the Lord, number one, equipping Moses, number two, calling him out of bondage, if you will. And number three, he's going to be a general, General Moses. Now, if you think about leaders in Israel, going back to 1948, most have seen active service. Sharon, Barak, and a few others, possibly... Uh, the uh, Prime Minister before Sharon, whose name escapes me, he may come to in moments, uh, have all seen military service. I don't know if Benjamin Yetanahu has seen military service. He would have gone through the IDF. If you are an Israeli citizen, it is compulsory to do military service. Every Jew, male and female, Bagan, would have to serve in the IDF. And yet that's a breach of the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, women were not enlisted to fight. And this is why the Jews today are not following the Old Testament. They are, they are still Jews. Of course they are. But they're not following the Old Testament. The Old Testament didn't allow women to fight in the armed forces. But today, every Jew, male and female, has to do at least two years service in the Israeli Defense Force, the IDF. And even after they leave the IDF, they are still on reserve. They're still in reserve. They are on call because, obviously, Israel lives under the threat of invasion. So every leader, or most leaders since 1948, have seen active service, apart from maybe a handful. Um, and that is obviously helpful because those people can relate to what it's like to fight on the front line. Unfortunately, Britain hasn't had Premier, probably going back to the early 1970s, that has seen military action. In fact, we discussed this a few weeks ago, Patrick and I, that the last American president to see active service was either Ford or Carter. Reagan wasn't making, uh, Reagan was making movies. Reagan was what you call a draft dodger. Reagan wouldn't fight. Clinton wouldn't fight. Uh, Trump, as far as I can think, didn't serve in Vietnam, has never seen uh, military service. And therefore, since the late 1970s, in fact, make that the early 1980s, no leader has seen any kind of military service. Nixon, of course, would see military service. I think Ford, perhaps, yeah. and Carter. Johnson. So Johnson's back in the 1960s, but up until the late 1970s, early 1980s, no American leader has seen any military service. The same is true in the UK. I'm not sure if Jim Callaghan saw military service. Maybe. He did. Maybe. And probably uh, Harold Macmillan yeah. and uh, Wilson. But you're going about 40 years Thatcher didn't see military service. Uh, John Major didn't see military service. Uh, Gordon Brown, Tony Blair, David Cameron, Theresa May. None of these people have seen military service, unlike Moses, who is about to see military service. And that's why I think through the permissive will of the Lord, he will allow Moses to get his hands dirty. And I mean literally dirty with the blood of an Egyptian. Moses wasn't a policeman. He wasn't a soldier. What he did was wrong. And later, you read about uh, safe zones in the Old Testament where the manslayer 
was able to go to, was able to hide, uh, and he would be there until the death of the high priest. But murder, manslaughter are not the same thing. The Lord always delineates between the two. Verse 12 again. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain, right up until the time of Christ. Christ dies on the cross, he's buried, he is resurrected, and John chapter 4, the Lord wants to be worshipped in spirit and in truth, which you can't do until you are born again. So much material from the third chapter, from the book of Exodus, and if you've got nothing else from this morning's live uh, broadcast, get this. Matthew 1 mirrors Exodus 1. Matthew 2 mirrors Exodus 2. Matthew 3 mirrors Exodus 3. Jesus matches Moses. Moses matches Jesus. Jesus goes to Herod. Moses goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a type of the Antichrist. So is Herod. Moses was a Jew for the children of Israel. Jesus was a Jew for the people of Israel. Along the way, Moses will have uh, relations with the Gentiles, so too with Jesus. But for the sake of Abraham, a Jew, for the sake of Isaac, a Jew, for the sake of Jacob, a Jew, Jehovah is going to be merciful to the Jews. And because of those three gentlemen, the Lord Jesus Christ would be sent to preach to the people of Israel. But here's the problem. Old Testament, the Jews corporately would reject God the Father. For the New Testament, they would reject God the Son. And for the book of Acts, they would reject God the Holy Ghost. And therefore the Lord initiates the new covenant, the birth of the church, which will consist of Jews and Gentiles. And it says over in uh, Galatians chapter 3 that when a person is born again, he or she is neither Jew nor Gentile, because you are now one in Christ. You are put into the body of Christ. And for now, the church age, the old covenant is suspended, if you will, the people that are Jews are still Jews. Let's not rob them of that. Uh, they've been through enough over the last several, several thousand years. But the reality is they can't be redeemed. They can't be saved unless they come to their Messiah. And I'll show you that next week when he would say to the Jews, unless you believe I am, you would die in your sins. The same would be true of Moses. How dare you question Moses? And like I said, there were several mutinies in the Old Testament. David would have his... Uh, fair share of uh, mutinies within and without his family joshua too but so too with moses and there were at least three occasions when a plague came into the camp and thousands were put down and that's why the word of god says that god wants to worship in spirit and also in truth this is a covenant relationship with the lord and when we get through the old testament and we finish the book of exodus you will just you will see you'll see just how holy Jehovah is and the consequences of not worshipping him the way he wants to be worshipped. And the same is true in the New Testament as well. There are parts of the New Covenants that will make your blood run cold. And the same is true in the Old Testament. It's not just John 3.16. It's not just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Yes, of course. But if you are in the body of Christ, if you are in the new covenant, there are rules to obey. And I mean rules, much like those found in the Old Testament. But we won't get into that today. Lord willing, we will pick it up next week from the third chapter of the book of Exodus being part two, of course. So we are working our way through the book of Exodus, the second book in the Old Testament. 
If you think of the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses, contrast that to the first five books of the New Testament written by the Apostles, or look at this way, the first five books of the Old Testament concern the man Moses. The first five books of the New Testament concern the man Christ Jesus. Moses wasn't a king per se, whereas Jesus Christ is a king. If you add Acts of the Apostles into the mix, and it has been said over the years that Acts of the Apostles is the unofficial fifth gospel, then you see the similarities between the first five books of the Old Testament concerning the birth of a nation, contrast that to the first five books of the New Testament concerning the birth of the church. Many similarities. And so far, we have spent the last six weeks, in fact, this is week number six, reading about a man called Moses, possibly the youngest of three children. I would suggest that Miriam is the oldest, then Aaron, then Moses. And this man, Moses, is around 40 years of age when he comes across an altercation. He sees an Egyptian guard or an Egyptian police officer, soldier, somebody of importance, killing or getting involved with an altercation concerning a Hebrew. Moses is grieved because he's been told by his biological mother that the Jews are the chosen race. And after many, many years of being raised by Pharaoh's daughter, he snaps. He has to make a decision and he steps in. He overreacts a bit like Peter would do back in the Garden of uh, Gethsemane, and he kills a man. You could call it manslaughter, you could call it murder, but nevertheless, Moses is now guilty of death, murder. He buries the man in the sand, and he scarpers. He runs for the hills. He doesn't once repent or confess. He's a man on the run. And the Lord says, that's okay, I'm going to use Moses, because one day he will be a general, a bit like Cromwell, and he will lead the children of Israel, like 1.5 million, out of Egypt, type of the world. In the book of Exodus, you're going to read about three pharaohs. If you think of Matthew through to Acts, you've got three Herods. Again, the similarities are quite striking. And last Sunday, I spoke about the 400 plus year silence uh, concerning Malachi to Matthew. The same would be true from the end of Genesis going into the book of Exodus. And after 400 years, the Lord speaks. And when he speaks, you better listen. It says over in Genesis chapter 1, let there be light, and there was light. If you think about God being eternal, no beginning, no end, no parents, has always lived, will ever live, will never die. If you really think about that for a period of time, it will blow your mind. When I was around 10, I remember thinking about God one night, and I went to bed almost sick. I couldn't comprehend how almighty God could be eternal, and of course he certainly is has no beginning, has no end, is all-powerful, and at a time of his choosing, he would speak the universe into creation, into existence. John chapter 1 speaks about Jesus Christ being the Word of God. And you, you know, if you understand the Word of God, and if you cross-reference that back to Genesis chapter 1, let there be light, and there was light, you know what I'm speaking about, how Almighty God, through Jesus Christ, would create everything. So one final time, and we will return to... Exodus chapter 3, and aim to conclude. You've got three pharaohs in the book of Exodus alone. Three pharaohs. You've got three Herods in the New Testament. Those three Herods are all antichrists. The three pharaohs are all antichrists. Or, if you want to be gracious and suggest that the pharaoh which knew Joseph was the best of a bad bunch, if you will, and that's fair enough, but he was still a lost man. 
He was a polytheist. So the similarities are numerous. And as we continue to work through the book of Exodus in the coming weeks and months, you're going to see many, many things. From chapter 3, verse 1, we read about Horeb or Horab, and that is probably Mount Sinai. And I should say that the jury is out as to the precise location of this mountain of God, Horab. Rutman and Hoffman suggest that this mount is in Saudi Arabia. MacArthur and McGee suggest that this mount, Mount Sinai, is in Egypt. And I will probably go with the latter. If it is Saudi Arabia, it's somewhat ironic if you look at Saudi Arabia today. But this mount, Mount Sinai, is going to be the place where Moses becomes a man. And by the time Almighty God speaks to Moses, and we looked at some of the verses last Sunday, he's around 80 years of age. Now most people, when they reach 80, are either dead, dying, or retired. But for Moses, his life is really just about to begin. And I like verse 6. In fact, look at verse 6 again, please. Moreover, he said... I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Present tense. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jews had never been destroyed. Because of Jesus Christ, the church has never been destroyed. Take Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob out of the equation, Israel would sink. Take Jesus Christ out of the equation, the church would sink. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Well, of course, this great being, no beginning, no end, all-powerful, sees everything, is able to intervene at a moment's notice. And when I hear foolish atheists and arrogant agnostics attacking the Lord, making fun of the Lord, saying that... If such a personal thing exists, they will have their say when they meet him. I just cringe sometimes. I fear for such stupidity. And when Moses comes into the, into the presence of this eternal God, he quite rightly hides his face. For today, the word of God says, we have great boldness. We can approach the throne of God. We don't need to be running away like terrified children. And yet, at the same time, the word of God speaks about how the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So last week we finished in verse 12, and I'll read it again. And he said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee. That word token is a term we still use today. This shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. I will give you proof. I will validate your ministry. You will do signs and wonders, unlike Muhammad, when thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God. Upon this mountain. Lead the people out of Egypt. And also you've got from a verse. Let's see now. A six and seven. The term my people. Uh, this is the first time such a term appears in scripture. My people. Concerning the Hebrews. And holy ground concerning Mount Sinai. Which again could be Egypt today or Saudi Arabia. Take your pick. But here. God is speaking to Moses. He's come of age. And like I said last time, there are three stages to the life of Moses. Similar to Jesus. The birth of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus. The death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. 
And Moses would say from the 17th, or make that the 18th chapter from Deuteronomy, that one day, Almighty God is going to raise him up a prophet like unto me, him you shall hear. And Muslims think that is in reference to Muhammad, somewhat of a joke I know. But of course he's speaking about the Messiah. And when Jesus Christ arrived, he had the sign gifts. And no matter how many sign gifts he had, no matter how many miracles he did, no matter what he said and did, most of jury did not believe on him. Going back to the fact that the devil has been able to blind their hearts and their minds. Look at verse uh, 13, please. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? So Moses, number one, is naturally sceptic concerning the response from the Jews. He would say that they are stiff-necked people. And so would Stephen from the book of Acts. Jesus Christ, like I just said a few moments ago, would clash repeatedly with the leaders in Jewry. And the Jewish leaders would say, who are you? And they would question his credentials, a bit like they have done with Moses. Moses said to God, behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, the God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, what is his name? Or, what authority do you have, Moses? What shall I say unto them? Now, it's a fair question. And this was put to Jesus many times. Where do you get your authority from? Who do you think you are? And Moses is already trying to envisage how this is going to go. And like Peter is going to be questioning the Lord. If you profile Peter and if you profile Moses, they have a lot in common. Three times Peter would deny the Lord. And at least three times from chapter 3 and chapter 4 from the book of Exodus, Moses is going to question the Lord. Peter had a temper problem. Go back to the Garden of Gethsemane concerning the sword incident. Moses had a temper problem concerning the death of the Egyptian. And it's like I've said over the years that if you are a man, you should be able to relate to at least one man in the script and say, that sounds like me. If you are a woman, you should be able to relate to at least one woman in the scripture and say, that sounds like me. Look at verse 14. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. I caught a broadcast, maybe just after Christmas, with the leading rabbi in America, America's most preeminent rabbi. And I watched this uh, interview conducted by a Christian minister and I watched it and I thought this would be interesting. And this rabbi has been billed as the most powerful rabbi in America and he's been to the White House many times. He has a lot of power and authority and within five minutes of watching this man, no more than 51, 52, 53, it turned out he is pro-same-sex marriage. It turns out he is a liberal, probably a Democrat, and he made the case that there isn't a verse in the Word of God which condemns same-sex marriage. I thought, what a liar. And I thought this, if this man was really a believer in Moses, a follower of the Torah, of course most religious Jews today are what we call uh, rabbinical Jews, that means rabbinical, rabbi Jews. They follow the rabbis, rabbinical Jews. They're not scriptural Jews. 
in a sense, they don't follow the scripture to the letter. But if he was a true Jew, in a sense of following the scripture to the letter, like the Orthodox Jews do, or the Hasidic Jews do, he would know that, number one, the scripture is against same-sex marriage, and number two, it would call for the death penalty, which no Jew living on any continent on the face of the earth today would dare enforce. In fact, if you go to Israel today and you try and enforce the Old Testament, you'll be arrested by the police. And to be fair to Israel, not only is she a democracy, but she upholds the law. The Israeli parliament and the uh, judiciary have arrested at least two former prime ministers, one president for corruption, for other crimes, and there was even a soldier who was charged last year with the murder of a Palestinian. And the prime minister wanted him pardoned, and the president of Israel, the high court in Israel, said no. He is guilty, and as far as I know, he's still in jail today. And God said unto Moses, verse 14, I am that I am. And if you were to sit down with this American Jewish rabbi, the most powerful rabbi in America, and ask him to exegete this for you, he couldn't do it. I am that I am. Not I have been, not I will be, but I am. In the sense of I have no beginning, nor end. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. The term I am is found 23 times in John's Gospel. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. And every time Jesus Christ would make such statements, the Jews were infuriated. They thought, who does this man think he is? He is preaching a message which we know is true. Going back to John chapter 3 concerning what Nicodemus would say to Jesus. We know who you are. We know where you have come from. Pilate would say that he was innocent of the Lord's soon to be death. Innocent blood. Even Judas uh, would affirm that Jesus Christ was innocent. But you couldn't say that about yourself, could you? You couldn't say you are innocent and you couldn't say that one day you will be innocent. You are guilty from the cradle to the grave. I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. So Jesus Christ arrives, and he will use that term 23 times, because he is almighty God. And that's why the Jews wanted to kill him. It was bad enough that he was associating with repentant Gentiles. But on top of that... He's got the sign gifts, Deuteronomy 18, but he's also affirming to be God, something nobody else could or would attempt to do. Verse 15, and God said moreover unto Moses, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations so the context is Jewry. The context is the Jews, which will lead into the Ten Commandments, which, just for the record, were given to the children of Israel, not to the church. And if you try and force the Ten Commandments onto Christians today, you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle in so many ways. But again, the Lord God 
of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And therefore, because of those three patriarchs, far from sinless, and we've already spoken about Abraham and the concubines and the wives, and Jacob with his four wives, Isaac with just one wife, and we've shown you over the years and months how problematic it is to suggest such men were sinless, but the Lord chose them for service in spite of themselves, not because of themselves. So this is a covenant. This is a contract concerning Jehovah and the Jews, and it's being dispensed orally to Moses. Nobody else was present. Nobody else is going to be briefed. This is similar to Jesus speaking to Peter, Andrew, and John. Matthew 24, his inner cabinet, if you will, his inner circle, if you will, and sometimes Andrew is also there, but Peter and, and Peter and uh, John are always present. And they hear things that the others don't hear. And then later on, the Lord explains to them what he's told his inner cabinet, if you will. But here, God wants to make it clear to Moses and vicariously to the children of Israel that he is eternal. And what he is saying to Moses is going to happen. Going back to his directive will contrast that to his permissive will and like i said a few moments ago when it says in genesis chapter one let there be light there was light you couldn't reverse it when jesus christ said lazarus come forth he came forth and somebody once said had he not said lazarus and just said come forth the entire world would have come up out of their tombs because of course jesus christ is almighty god this is my name forever and this is my memorial Unto all generations. So the Lord has many names. He'll have uh, the name Jehovah. Which will appear no more than five or six times in the Old Testament. He'll be known as Elohim. He will be known as Adonai. He will be known as El Gabor. And for the New Testament. Emmanuel Jesus Messiah. 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together. And say unto them. The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you, and seen that which is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt, unto the land of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. I have surely visited you several times, the Lord comes down from heaven. He would come down and speak to a very young Samuel. He would come down and speak to a very young Solomon. He would come down and deal with the Sodom and Gomorrah situation. And many times in the Old Testament, he would appear as the angel of the Lord, a Christophany, a Theophany. But the ultimate uh, descent from heaven to earth would be the incarnation, how the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 16 is very reminiscent to Acts chapter 20, when Paul speaks about gathering the elders uh, in Ephesus, and he would brief the elders in Ephesus about what would happen down the line, and he would do what Moses would do, warn them that enemies would come from within the church, not without, and Moses would say the same concerning the children of Israel, dealing with false Jews down the line, who would seek to devour the flock. The Lord God... And that term is very Old Testament. Lord God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you in a unique way concerning Exodus chapter 3, like Mount Sinai, which could be in Egypt today, or Saudi Arabia, take your pick, and seeing that which is done to you in Egypt. He saw what was going on, and for over 430 years or thereabouts, he sat back, and he sat back from Malachi to Matthew, and nobody spoke to anyone from Malachi to Matthew. And then one day, a child is born, Matthew 1, Luke chapter 1, and from the end of Genesis into Exodus, one day, Almighty God speaks to the man Moses, a Levite, and he gives Moses a very special message. And the same will be true to John the Baptist, uh, John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And the Pharisees went out to meet John the Baptist, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and probably Herod's secret police and Pilate's secret police went out to see who this man was, baptizing in the River Jordan, dressed like Elijah. And it says how all of Israel, all of Jerusalem, all of the surrounding districts went out to be baptized of John the Baptist. Remarkable. And here Moses has been plucked from obscurity. Yes, he was, if you will, Pharaoh's adopted grandson, if you will. According to Josephus, the Pharaoh that was connected to Moses through his daughter could have been, could have been uh, Ramesses II, although I know that is disputed by some scholars. And what Josephus says is that this particular Pharaoh and his daughter uh, were both without sons. And therefore, when she came into contact with Moses, she obviously took a shine to him. The Lord clearly opened her heart and she would adopt him as her own. And therefore, the Lord doesn't want Moses to go back to that particular Pharaoh because it says over in uh, uh, chapter 2, uh, 23, how that particular king of Egypt had died like Herod the Great, Matthew chapter 2. And therefore the Lord is going to wait, what, 40 years? Until the third and final Pharaoh will be raised up. A bit like the third and final Herod would be raised up and would clash with Paul in the latter parts of the Acts of the Apostles. So the Lord is going to spare Moses that pain of clashing with his grandfather, quote-unquote. But eventually that Pharaoh will die and now it's time for Moses to start to prepare the children of Israel to lead uh, to leave Egypt. Egypt, of course, is a type of the world. I have said I'll bring you up out the affliction of Egypt, verse 17, unto the land of the Canaanites. I've already promised this to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now I'm going to reiterate it. And the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, unto a land flow of milk and honey. A metaphor to denote that this land will be, number one, large enough for around two million people. And number two, it will be able to provide your every need. Paul says how our God, his God, my God, is able to provide your every need. Look at verse 18 from Exodus chapter 4, please. And they shall hearken to thy voice, and thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt, and ye shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us. And now let us go, we beseech thee, three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And I don't mean like the mass, which is a non-bloody sacrifice. This is a bloody sacrifice. The literal death of animals, sacrificed, offered to the one true God, 
And it says over in Hebrews how such offerings would cover the sins of the righteous, but wouldn't take away the stain of sin until the Saviour came and died for the sins of the world. And therefore, you've got tens of millions from creation right up till Calvary that were righteous, that did good, that honoured their consciences, that walked with the Lord like Noah, like Enoch, like Moses. And when they died, they went into the ground. Abraham's bosom, they couldn't go to heaven because nobody had covered their sins or nobody had taken away their sins. The sacrifices from the Old Testament were types of the sacrifice. John chapter 1, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. We beseech thee, verse 18, three days journey, let us go into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, not your God. He isn't your God until you are born again. And when people say that God is our Father and we're all children of God, that's a lie. That's a wicked slur. And this American rabbi who was interviewed, as I say, just around Christmas time last year, spoke for 35 minutes. And I was not overly surprised, but somewhat stunned that this man, who has had a very good education, has been to some of the top schools in America, speaks Hebrew, of course, couldn't exegete the I am from verse 14, couldn't cross-reference that to the Gospel of John, couldn't see that same-sex marriage was out. And later on, you're going to read about these sons of Aaron continuing in the line of their father, the priesthood, not the daughters of Aaron, but the sons of Aaron. There are no female priests in either Testament. There are no female disciples in the New Testament. Paul could have chosen female disciples had he wanted to, but he didn't. And therefore, when I watch these people, I think to myself, they're so educated, so privileged. As the year of American presidents flies to Israel on a regular basis, and yet he doesn't take the Old Testament seriously. He is a rabbinical Jew, and he'll be very much into the Talmud. And he would read these verses like I'm doing this live Lord's Day morning and say, yes, of course, this happened, but don't take it literally. It's more of an analogy, or you are to spiritualize it, or you are to accept the principles of this text. But the best way to follow the Old Testament is to go via the rabbis. And that was a custom even during the days of Jesus. Rabbi such and such would quote Rabbi such and such. And Rabbi such and such would quote Rabbi such and such. And then Jesus Christ arrived and said, but I say, and that threw them. In fact, when he was 12 years of age, he went into the temple. And it says how he sat with the doctors and the scholars, asking questions, receiving questions. And they were just thrown by the wisdom of this young child. They must have thought to themselves, we are in the presence of somebody very special. And I don't know if perhaps a young Nicodemus was present or a young Joseph of Arimathea was present, perhaps, I don't know. Or maybe a young Caiaphas and his father were present, I don't know. But if I was to be in the presence of a 12-year-old child, and he's quoting the scripture left, right, and center, and he's exegeting it, and he's preaching it with passion, he would have my attention. 19. And I'm sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand. And I'm sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand. Well, of course not. This crowd 
running Egypt at the time were the most powerful men in the world. They have been using the Jews for over 400 years to build treasure cities, going back to chapter 1 and also uh, chapter 2. The children of Israel have been dragging heavy uh, cement and concrete slabs around Egypt. They probably helped build the pyramids. They've made the Egyptian government a lot of money. And here's the thing. Wouldn't it be interesting if Israel's parliament today tried to sue the Egyptian government today? We want compensation. We spent 400 years building up Egypt. Of course, Egypt now is a third world Islamic country. But wouldn't that be interesting? And I mentioned a few weeks ago how Germany have spent millions and given millions to Israel since 1948 because of World War II. But as far as I know, the Jewish government, any government, going back to its recreation, 1948, have never taken Cairo to court. Wouldn't that be interesting? And I would suggest this, that if you were, or if you are, a young, bright Israeli lawyer in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem, you could cut your teeth on that particular court case. You could at least attempt to take Cairo to court and claim compensation. I am sure that the king of Egypt, the third and final pharaoh, will not let you go. Of course not. No, not by a mighty hand. I would have to force his hand. I would have to destroy his nation. And he would. In fact, I caught an interview last night uh, concerning a very uh, black militant group in America uh, being interviewed by a conservative black radio presenter. And somebody phoned in and said that the children of Israel spent 400 years in captivity. And like I just said a few moments ago, dragging slabs around Egypt, premature deaths, women miscarrying, people dying before the age of 40. And... They came through that. They survived it. Contrast that to the civil rights movements up until the mid-1960s. The two don't even come anywhere near. And this black radio presenter was saying, well, even during uh, the era of slavery and beyond, black people were more uh, successful in America. They were married. They stayed married. They didn't have abortions. In fact, he made one... uh, statement which is kind of surprising to me he said that 72 percent of black couples are having children out of wedlock 72 percent contrast that to white people 35 percent mexicans 50 percent and he said how is it possible that black people are having so many children out of wedlock like 72 percent and i thought i've never heard jesse jackson preach that I've never heard Al Shapton preach that. I've never heard Bill Clinton preach that. I've never heard Hillary Clinton, Tony Blair, Cherie Blair, Jeremy Corbyn make such a statement. They wouldn't dare, of course. It's political suicide. But the point was this. Egypt, world power, Jews in slavery, suffering, struggling, and the Lord stepped in and delivered them from such a situation. Egypt, of course, is a type of the world, and Israel in the Old Testament is a picture of the church for here and now. And the more I listen to these interviews, and the more I watch these interviews, the more I 
can appreciate that we, that we really are living in the last days and that people are going to get worse and worse, not better and better. And of course, if you take that to be the case, you have to be pre-millennial. You can't be post-millennial. You can't believe that the world is going to get better before Christ returns. I mean, 72% and not just that. Black Americans are having more abortions than white Americans. I need to check the stats for what it's like in the UK and what it's like in Europe. I would imagine it's a similar statistic. I am sure I know through my sovereignty that the king, the pharaoh of Egypt, will not let you go, children of Israel. No, not by a mighty hand. Therefore, I will intervene and I will force him to let you go. Now, if you look back over the 20th century, if you look back to the build-up to World War II, or if you look at the Soviet Union, or if you look at China, or the Korean Peninsula today, you see how the Lord works. You see how he works through nations. And he will raise up wicked people to force good people, quote-unquote, to retaliate, to do what is necessary. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, he will let you go. I will stretch out my hand, metaphorically speaking, and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I would do in the midst thereof. By the time he gets through with Egypt, they are finished. And after that, he will let you go. He'll have no option. His kingdom will be broken. His people will be on their knees, begging Pharaoh to let the children of Israel out. If you think of World War II, 1943-1944, most of the fit German soldiers were either dead, dying, or incarcerated. And the Third Reich was so desperate to reinforce safe zones like what they had in France that they would send older soldiers to Paris in their 50s and 60s and younger soldiers, mid to late teens. Neither group could, or neither groups of people could fight, too old or too young. The war was over, but Hitler was desperate to cling to power, as uh, would be the same concerning Pharaoh. 21. And I will give this people favour in the sights of the Egyptians. And it shall come to pass that when ye go, ye shall not go out empty. But every woman shall borrow of her neighbour and of her and of her that sojourneth in her house. Jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And ye shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters. And ye shall spoil the Egyptians. And I will give this people favour in the sights of the Egyptians. And it shall come to pass that when ye go... You shall not go empty. Well, of course not. They've been there for over 400 years. I mean, this is real slavery. Not like what the British Empire has been accused of. Or the American Civil Rights Movement. This is real slavery for 400 plus years. Working seven days a week. 15, 16 hours a day. But every woman shall borrow of her neighbour. That term, borrow. I want to borrow... It's compensation, isn't it? Obviously. But every woman shall borrow, shall borrow of her neighbour, and of her that sojourneth in her house, jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment, silver, gold and clothing, and ye shall put them upon your sons. Well, of course, they got a long trip ahead of them. And upon your daughters, and ye shall spoil 
the Egyptians. Literally wipe them out, but not quite. It won't be as crude as that. This is compensation. This is payment. This is their wages being backdated, if you will. So 22 verses from the third chapter of the book of Exodus. And it's moving very quickly now. Moses couldn't have thought in a million years that the Lord would choose him, commission him, and anoint him to be Israel's first general, if you will. And he will lead over a million and a half people out of Egypt. Up until this time in history, this will be the greatest exodus, the greatest exit from Egypt. They will leave, but it won't be easy for them. And most of the generation that will leave Egypt will not make it into the promised land. Most of the generation that will leave Egypt are, number one, part of the mixed multitude, which we will read about later. And number two, most of the generation that would leave Egypt were ungrateful, a bit like the wife of Lot. And as a result, the Lord is going to try them, see that they are found wanting, and one by one, or thousands by thousands, will be eliminated. And they will die in the wilderness. And even Moses and Miriam and Aaron will not make it into the promised land. Which, if I was to try and contrast that to people saved today, I would suggest that that's a good picture of our millennial inheritance. If we don't live holy after we are saved, if we don't continue to walk with the Lord after we are saved, if we don't produce fruit after we are saved, if we don't do something continually for the Lord after we are saved, we risk losing our millennial inheritance. Not our salvation, of course, but our place in the thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Moses could forfeit his place in such a place, and he did, if Miriam and Aaron could forfeit their places in such a place, and they did, what makes you think you couldn't forfeit your place in the millennial kingdom? But this is going to be a fascinating study, and I'm going to suggest one more time that it will run to probably two years from start to finish, and we will look at the maps as we go through this book. We will try and uh, chart the journey that the children of Israel would uh, take to the promised land, and we will do so. But before we get to that, we will read about the Lord destroying a nation, Egypt, like he would do Germany, 1945. Germany was the most advanced country in Europe, and yet by the time the war had ended, it was the poorest country in Europe. And the same is going to be true of Egypt. The most powerful country in the ancient world. And by the time that the Lord has got through with Egypt, it's the poorest and most stripped and barren country on the face of the earth. You mess with the Lord, he will mess with you. And that's why it's imperative to get born again, get under the blood and just rest in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ.